You know, uh, Jesus said when he, uh, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, and we had the privilege uh, just... Uh, I lose track of time, it's probably six, eight weeks ago now, to stand on the very mountain where Jesus preached the famous sermon of Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But he opened that message with, uh, with the Beatitudes, which simply says, blessed are they. And one of those Beatitudes is, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How many of you know Jesus is the King of righteousness? If we will hunger and thirst for him, and our heart is leaning into him and we are yearning for him like that song we just sang, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. You are welcome in this place. You're welcome in my heart. You're welcome in my life. I, I read a tweet by our great friend and mentor, Danny Guglamucci, uh, just in the last week or so. Many of us want the power of God to deliver us, but we're not wanting the power of God to disciple us to bring correction to our life, to adjust us, to mold us and take us on the journey of, of bringing to perfection the work that he began in us. And, you know, that's really what he's about. He's more interested in, in doing that stuff in us than delivering, delivering us out of the stuff that we are uncomfortable in. In fact, I've come to a place, I'm convinced more than ever, the things we ask God to deliver us from are things that he's delivered to us in order to grow us, enlarge us, expand our faith and, and cause us to draw closer to him. So we're saying, God, get me out of this. He's saying, no, I want you to stay in it. So God, I thought you were a deliverer. I am and I will deliver you, but you have to walk through this so I can deliver you. But you'll walk through this in partnership with me and you'll come out the other side more than a conqueror. You'll come out the other side an overcomer rather than being overcome. Are you out there? Yes. You know, I, you know Mar Margot just said, uh, don't complain about who wins the election if you don't pray about it. Um, you know, don't complain if the power of God's not evident in your life and around your life, regardless of the circumstances you're in, if you are not seeking first <laughs> righteousness and hungering and thirsting for the king of righteousness. That's what will get you through. Yeah, I'm a runner. I run the church. I run the staff. I run a car. I'm a runner. Just as much as Margot is a runner, I'm a runner. I'm a runner too. You know, I, just as we were worshipping there this morning, I just looked across and I saw Marika Gavrilovsky sitting over here. It's great to have you back in church, Marika. It, it's great to have you here in church. Pleasure. You, yo, that's good. You come with your friend Lara? And uh, yeah. That's great. Uh, Marika was in church here when Pastor John was the senior pastor. And Marika used to come every Sunday with her mum. And uh, yeah, faithful woman of God. Gone home to be with the Lord now, of course. But. Uh, Marika comes along now, and it's, it really is good to have you with us. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I, I want to I read just a few verses out of there and then share some things with you just in the time that we have left this morning. But this is Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthian church, and he says in chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, We now have this light shining in our hearts. Some translations say we have this earthen uh, this treasure in earthen vessels. Uh, I'm sure you're all aware that we were created from the dust back in Genesis. 
um, out of the dust, God formed us, man, woman, and and uh, we are from dust, and to dust we shall return. King David said in one of his psalms, "We are but dust. How is that you are mindful of us?" And uh, that's what an earthen vessel is. Our body is referred in the Bible as a vessel, and it's an earthen vessel. It's made from the dust of the earth. And Paul says we have this treasure, this light, in our earthen vessels, or in this translation, shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And of course, this great treasure is the presence of God. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, wherever we go, God goes with us. We carry his presence. We are carriers of the life of God, carriers of the power of God, carriers of the peace and uh, presence of God. So he says, this makes it clear because this power is in such a weak earthen vessel. This makes it clear that our great power that Paul operated in so well. He said, I didn't come to you with eloquent words. He said, I came to you with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. And he said, this makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves because of ourselves, we are just weak earthen vessels. He then goes on and says, we are pressed on every side by troubles. How many of you remember the words of Jesus? I think it's John chapter 14, where he says, in this world, you will have trouble. So stop complaining that God's not delivering you. He told you, you would have trouble. He forewarned you, you would have trouble. He said, trials will come. That's why James said, I count it all joy. I get excited when trials come. I, I am not quite at the level James is at. I, I don't like trouble, I don't like strife, I don't like contention. But James had a revelation of something that positioned him to be able to push through life and its troubles and its barriers to the point where he says, I, I get excited when trouble comes because my Savior, Jesus, who I walked with for three years, has actually told me that I will have trouble in this world. But don't be afraid because I have what over come the world. So Paul says, we are pressed on every side by troubles. It's a part of the package of being a Christian. Come to terms with it. We are not crushed, though, by those troubles. That excites me. I, I, I am hard-pressed on every side by trouble, but I'm not crushed. Why am I not crushed? Because I have this treasure in earthen vessels. I have this light shining in my heart. The power of God inside this weak vessel enables me to overcome the troubles and push through every circumstance that the enemy wants to throw in my direction. We are perplexed, he said, but we are not driven to despair. We're hunted down. One translation says persecuted. We are persecuted, but never abandoned or rejected by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. We, we live in a very troubled world. We live in a world full of pain, a world full of rejection, a world full of abandonment, a world full of all kinds of, of emotional hang-ups and problems, fears and phobias. 
And the world out there doesn't want to see a perfect Christian. The world out there needs to see a strong Christian who has tapped into the power of God, the treasure in the earthen vessel of our body and is enabling us to overcome what they're trying to overcome. They're looking for a role model to to find out how to overcome and we need to give it to them. We need to give it to them. Paul says in verse 11, the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live, he said, in the face of death. But this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach. Even though we're hard-pressed on every side, even though we are, uh, are burdened by trouble after trouble after trouble, even though at times we feel completely perplexed, we keep, we keep preaching because we have the what same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We've got to stop looking for the power of God to deliver us and start looking for the wisdom of God to show us what it is he's trying to do in us and through us. You know, I... I I am absolutely convinced now what Margot and I went through over the last seven years was purposed and birthed and planned by God. As painful and as difficult and as stretching and as challenging as it was, it was ordained by God because God wanted to do something in us so that he could do something greater through us. Whatever that looks like, yet we're yet to see it. But the reality is whatever pain, whatever trouble, whatever strife we face, there's a purpose and a plan, a greater purpose and a plan coming out of the goodness of God's heart. And at the time, we don't always see it as the goodness of God. We see it sometimes as a burden to bear that we shouldn't have to bear. But if we would just stop and hunger and thirst after the King of Righteousness, we might just get some insight as to what he's trying to achieve in us and through us. I want to share with you in the time we have, which is not very long this morning, on a subject to do with faith that is often, I believe, the underlying cause of stumbling, setback, and disappointment for many of us. To put it in a very simple term, it's when our expectations of God, when our our belief in God fail to reconcile with reality. In one word, disappointment. For many of us, there is often a huge gap between what we expect from our Christian faith, from our Christian life, and what we actually experience in reality. I've been around long enough. I've I've been in the Pentecostal church now It'll be October this year. It'll be 40 years. So I've, I've, I've spent almost two-thirds of my life in the Pentecostal church. And I've heard all the prosperity preaching. I've heard all the faith preaching. I've heard all the blab it and grab it preaching. I've heard all of the, uh, the doctrines that people expound about God wants me to prosper just as my heart and my soul prospers but their concept of prospering is that I'll get a new car every year or that I'll get an upgrade in the house every year or that the bank account will never run dry. I've actually come to a place where I believe God allows our bank account to run dry to see whether our trust is in him or whether it's in our bank account. And then when our bank account runs dry, we start complaining, well, where is God? And then our expectation, which often is an ungodly expectation, it's a little bit like the guys on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was crucified. And it's like they're walking along and they're, they're downcast. They're, they're perplexed, but they were sinking in despair as a result of their perplexity. 
because they had this thinking that Jesus was going to save Israel then and there. They had no wider concept of the purpose of the kingdom that was way, way greater than their personal preference. And as they're walking along, Jesus comes alongside of them and says, uh, uh, what is it you're talking about? And they just begin to vomit out all of this negativity, all of this stuff. Haven't you heard Jesus of Nazareth, who was anointed of God, who carried the power of God and the presence of God wherever he went? He cleansed lepers. He opened blind eyes. He raised sick people off their mats who were crippled. One guy was crippled from birth. He'd never walked and he just raised him up. It was just amazing. But... The Romans crucified him and hung him on a cross and he died and he's been buried. And then they say these words, but we were hoping, but we were hoping, we were hoping he would have delivered Israel. We were hoping that he would have broken through and saved us all. We were were hoping. And I think sometimes as Christians, we all fall into the trap of we were hoping. Rather than, God, what is your greater plan? God, what is your greater purpose? Because I believe with all my heart, he, he rose from the grave to make me a conqueror. And if I'm going to be a conqueror, I have to have something to conquer. If I'm going to be a man of faith, I have to have something to overcome. So he will put practice shots in front of me. And sometimes those practice shots fire back with live rounds. Sometimes those practice shots rear their head and they've got real teeth. But he wants to grow me. He wants to enlarge me. And I, you know, I've had my share of grumbling and complaining about my circumstances and my difficulties and my challenges. I've had my share of all of that. But I don't want to live like that. I want to live walking with Jesus hand in hand through the valley of the shadow of death, even though it's dark and it's cold and it's miserable at times, because I know he has a greater purpose if I would just trust him. If I'll just let him take me through. But this whole thing of unmet expectation, I believe, has derailed more Christians than anything else. And I think preachers at times have created a false atmosphere. If you just come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. I come to a point where I realize, come to Jesus, things can get an awful lot worse. Because you now have a big target on your back. It's like the, the cartoon Thing. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's two bears and the bear's got this big target on his back and his mate says, bummer of a birthmark, Al. <laughs> but you get a big target on your back when you become a Christian and then you get an even bigger target on your back when you decide to step out in faith and do something for the kingdom of God because the devil is about crushing the kingdom of God and we're about expanding the kingdom of God and everyone that steps out and utilizes their gifting we start to enlarge the kingdom of God. But this unmet expectation, we believe God for finances and provision, but finances don't arrive. Something happens and the finances just don't come through. And we get our sights fixed on a goal and, and we start to, to pray it in and declare it and speak it into the atmosphere of our life. Let me tell you something. If God hasn't deposited that in your heart, you're speaking in vain. God only only grows and nurtures and protects what he gives birth to. And sometimes we get this thing in our mind, well, I'm a faith man now, I'm going to believe for that, and I'm going to believe for that, and I'm going to believe for that. But if God's not in it, you're believing for things that he hasn't blessed or ordained. And I'm absolutely convinced he only blesses what he gives birth to. But if he lays it on our heart, that's where I want you to go. That's where I want you to be. That's what I want you to do. If we will just seize that and let our faith be released into that. You will still have opposition. 
You will still have challenge. You will still have pain. You will still have trouble because in this life, you will have trouble. I, um, I think in Paul's list of difficulties, the hardest for him to bear may have been this thing called perplexed. You know, when you're, when you're hard-pressed on every side, you kind of know that you're in a struggle. When the pressures and the stress of your job, your workplace, your family, your home, whatever that might look like, you've got kids that aren't following Jesus anymore. You've got kids that, that once were in the house, but they're no longer in the house. That brings a burden to a parent's heart. That, that brings pain that sometimes feels unbearable. When you've got mental illness that hits your household and, and it starts to affect the wider family, that brings a burden. It's being hard-pressed on every side, but it's in the middle of those challenges. We're going to learn to sink away. We are well in the valley of Baca. How many of you know that psalm? In the valley of Baca, blessed are those who sink a well. We need to, in the middle of the pain, learn how to sink a well and draw water from the wells of salvation that quenches our soul. When we're hard-pressed on every side, when there's pressures mounting that I don't think the promotion is going to come or I don't think the, the finances are just going to make the budget. I just, uh, it's just in those moments you can see what it is that's putting the pressure on you. When you're hard-pressed, on, when you're persecuted or when you're, you're hunted down, you, you, know, you, can, you can see or at least you can feel a sense of the enemy. When you're struck down, you generally know where the blow came from, but perplexed. Perplexed is, is when you, 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 you haven't got a clue. You think, what just happened? How, how did I get here? How did I, how did I face this? How did I, and again, I, I, I'm not going back into all the details, but, but I remember in, in our, the middle of our journey over the last, uh, well, it wasn't the last seven years. We've been out of it now for a couple of years. So it's probably started nine years ago, but it was a seven-year period in our life where, where I remember one minute, everything was, was just Tranquil, and that's what the prophetic word said. You're like a couple in a canoe. Everything's just lush and green and peaceful and calm. But, but you need to know that, that you, you, the water's going to pick up speed. You need to know that, that you're going to be in the rapids you, you, like that. It's so you, next thing you know, you're going to be in the rapids and the paddles will go overboard and you'll lose all control of the thing. I was perplexed because it went from peace, calm, tranquil to a sudden waterfall that, and we just lost everything and just all we could do was hang on. It was a place where despair begins to rear its head and you feel like I, I can't go on. I haven't got a clue. How did I get from here to here? How did that happen so fast? How did it come upon me without me being uh, you know, aware of the whole thing? Perplexed is when you feel abandoned, you feel rejected, you feel despondent. You feel, God, where are you? But Paul said, I was perplexed, but yet not in despair. So you see, he discovered this key to being able to, to deal with the perplexity that was pushing against him, look beyond the perplexity to the God behind the perplexity, to the God who was engineering and working every circumstance and detail of his life and watching closely over his word to perform it. God, God carried Paul through every circumstance. It's in a state of perplexity that I believe many of us face the very real potential of derailing our future. You might still be in church, but have you derailed the potential that could have been or still could be? Because I, I, I'm a firm believer it's never too late. 
God is a redeeming God. Over the years, I've asked people, uh, would you share around communion? Oh, no, no, I'm not doing that. But yet they've got a background in ministry. I said, oh, why not? When you, you dig a little deeper, they were hurt. No, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to do that. And so they just sit on the talent that's now buried in their life and they become perplexed. I don't know how I got here. You know, we've got to overcome that. Because really, by just sitting there, sitting on your gift, you might say, well, at least I'm in church. The devil hasn't won. The devil has won. Because he's taken out another vital element to the growth and expansion of the kingdom by your gift sitting there underutilized. I thank God for Pastor John, uh, you know, a, a humble man. He was my senior pastor. He married Margot and I. You know, he, he helped train me as a connect group leader. I remember sitting in his car at a, at a youth camp. I was struggling in my leadership. Goodness me, I had no idea what struggle was. I'm leading a connect group. Oh, Pastor John, I'm drowning. I'm sinking. I'm... He probably doesn't remember this conversation, but we're sitting at Crangan Bay down south of Swansea at this youth camp. And I'm thinking, oh, Pastor John, I don't think I can go on. So I reckon on the inside he's going, goodness me, son, it's only a connect group. Wait till you get the real deal. And I look, if, if God had pulled back the curtains and showed me the seven-year period of my life, I'd have run a mile. I'd have become a Buddhist or something, a monk in the hills. I, But I do. I thank God for Pastor John. You know, a humble man. He was my senior pastor. Now I'm his. And he's good with that. His gifting's not buried, though. He still brings it to the table. And, you know, he said to me one day, don't call me Pastor John. I'm not a pastor. I don't have a credential anymore. And I know he knows this more than most. How many of you know a credential doesn't make you a pastor? It's a gift from heaven. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. He's a pastor as far as I'm concerned. Sorry, John, I, I, I didn't want to embarrass you. You know, Nehemiah is probably one of my most favorite Old Testament books. And I think it's one of my most favorite because the journey of Nehemiah, I, I think for me personally, reflects the journey of the church. The church has been through a lot. The church has struggled a lot. The church has been persecuted. The church has been attacked yet the church is still standing, but there are seasons and times in the life of the church where it's broken and it needs to be rebuilt. There are seasons where it, it, it rises up and then something happens and there's a fracture and people scatter and then you're back with a remnant and you build again and it rises up and then something happens and there's another fracture and, and, and there's a scattering and then you're back with a remnant. That's a little bit like the journey of the people of Israel. When we were there a couple of months ago, uh, we were walking around the old walls of Jerusalem and I'm, I'm just mesmerized as I walk around going, this is what Nehemiah built. I'm here. I'm at, and I touched the big stones. I thought, Nehemiah's crew put this here. And then my, my, my whole idea was dashed when someone told me, oh, this isn't the stones Nehemiah built. It's been torn down a few times since Nehemiah's day. But then I thought about that and I thought, but that's the journey of the church. She gets built up, she gets knocked down. She gets built up, she gets knocked down. And I love the whole story of Nehemiah because I get so much encouragement out of it. But when I look at the, the order and the pattern, it so reflects my own journey in God. Nehemiah chapter 1, it's the call of God upon Nehemiah's life. Hanani, his brother, and, and a few other people returned from Judah. The Babylonian captivity is over, but there are still a lot of God's people still in Babylon, even though they, they weren't as oppressed as what they were. A remnant had gone back to, to Jerusalem and back to the land of Israel. 
And uh, Nehemiah was still in Babylon as a cupbearer to Xerxes, the king of, of uh, was it Persia? Pastor John Xerxes, the king of Persia. I think it was Persia. He was the cupbearer. And guys come back and he inquires, how is it going for our people? And they just said, it's not good. They said, the walls are broken down. The, the, the gates have been burned with fire. The people are oppressed. Uh, there's only a few of them. It's, they, they feel hopeless. They've lost vision. They've lost spirit. And at that moment, the spirit of God comes on Nehemiah. And that's what happened to me. You know, when I'm first saved, I was very aware of brokenness in the world because of some of my connections before I got saved. And then I, I hear the preaching about Jesus rebuilding brokenness and repairing hearts and restoring relationships. And then a burden comes upon me. I can make a difference in this world. I can do something in the hearts of those that are smashed up, those that are broken. That, and that's what happened to Nehemiah. And he gets excited in God. He, he prays. God, give me favor in the eyes of the king. And then you come to chapter two, where everything comes together. And that's what happened for me. Everything just began to come together. I met Marga, got married. I, I, I was involved in leadership in the church and I'm rising. I'm being uh, equipped and I'm being trained and I'm, I'm learning about local church life. And then I go off to Bible college and, and, and one thing after another just falls into place and God is molding and shaping. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. He goes before the king. He's sad. The king says to him, why are you so sad? And he says, well, how can I be happy when my, the, the home my ancestors were buried in is broken down and in ruins. And the king says, what do you need? He said, would you please grant me leave to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? The king says, absolutely. Favor, favor. And that was my journey. It was favor, one favor after another. I've got the call of God. I'm excited. I actually said to Margot, if we're going to get married, I'm called of God. You need to know that. She said, I've been called longer than you have, buddy. She said, if you're not called, we're not getting married. It was me telling her, if you're not called. You know, but you see, it all fell into place. I married a woman who was on the same page. Yeah. I've, seen, I've seen pastors struggle in ministry because their wife is not on the same page. And it can be really, really difficult. But that's just been the favor of God for us and the journey we've been on. And then Nehemiah says to the king, look, if I can be so bold. He said, please, I hope you don't see this as too bold. But he said, could you give me letters to the governors of your provinces between here and the, and the land of Israel so that they will give me safe passage through the land? He said, you've got it, anything you want. He said, if I could just be a little bit bolder. He said, could you also give me letters authorizing your majesty's forest manager to give me all the timber that I need to rebuild Jerusalem? That's a lot of timber. He's not saying, I just want to rebuild my house. I mean, that'd be a big ask. To go to a local builder and say, can you give me enough timber? Can you give me, give me, not asking to buy it. Can you give me enough timber to build my house? They'd probably say no. He says to the king, can you give me enough timber to rebuild an entire city? The king said, it's yours. The favor of God. And then chapter, chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he arrives, he goes out and he expects the damage. And, and the, the, the damage is far greater than he thought as it is in our world today. There's far greater pain out there than many of us realize. We're insulated from it in many ways. He goes out and he inspects the wall and he comes back. He's a little overwhelmed by it, but then he begins to share his heart. God has called me. And this is the favor of God. He tells them the story of the king back in Babylon and how the king has authorized the release of timber at no cost. God has, has gone before us. And then he, then he says the reason why there's so much favor. He says the good hand of God is upon us. And sometimes we read things like that and we think, well, where's the good hand of God upon me? 
I believed for healing and my loved one died. I believed for breakthrough, but I'm still here struggling with this solid wall in front of me. I just can't get through. Sometimes we just got to stop and say, God, whatever it is you're doing, I'm just going to walk with you. I'm just going to let you guide me. And if that wall doesn't move, it's because you've decided to leave it there. For whatever reason, because your wisdom is far greater than mine. So he declares his vision and talks about the favor of God. That reflects our journey. And then chapter 3, the ministry begins. Gets his first ministry position in Dubbo Church as a youth pastor, as an assistant pastor. I was on fire. I was there. It was happening. And that's when he arrived in Jerusalem. He says, here's the vision. They caught the vision. They all said, let's do it. They got excited. And then Nehemiah chapter 3 is the most powerful passage in the Bible on teamwork. People releasing their giftings, their skills, their talents. Craftsmen, laborers, people who knew what they were doing got together and this group built that section of the wall and this group built this section of the wall and this one built this section. How many of you know many hands make light work? And then the space of 52 days, I stood there and looked at those stones. Now, I know they weren't the stones that Nehemiah put in place, but they were similar. How they moved them, I have no idea. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have earth-moving equipment. They just had their hands, picks, shovels. And some of those stones, look, honestly, some of those stones are are from the pulpit to that speaker over there, long, high. You know, some of them weigh three, four ton. But they rebuilt the entire walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. It's a favor of God, the purpose of God, the plan. Those three chapters in Nehemiah are absolutely exciting. But then comes chapter 4. Then comes chapter 4. Let me tell you something. When you step out to do something for God, you will have a chapter 1. You will have a chapter 2. You will have a chapter 3. But you'll definitely have a chapter 4. You'll definitely face your share of Sanballat's. Your share, you'll say, what's a Sanballat? No, it's who's a Sanballat. You'll definitely face your share of Tobias, your share of Geshem's. People that will rise up against you, forces that will oppose you, that will resist you, that will push against you, that will make it hard. You know, the Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 4 that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, Geshem was an Arab guy, but rose up and began to mock the Jews. Let me tell you something. Mockery carries a powerful force. We experienced that in our seven-year journey. We knew there was mocking going on behind our back. We knew that stuff was, and it's draining. You know, the, the Bible, Solomon, I think it was, says there is death and life in the power of the tongue. So this, this whole thing of sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's rubbish. I'd rather be hit with a stick than get lashed by somebody's tongue. They rose up and they began to mock the Jews. One of them said, oh, even if a fox walked on that wall, it'll crumble down. Just mocking, mocking, mocking. And the people's faith began to be drained by this strong verbal attack, verbal oppression. You know, and Nehemiah hits, hits his knees and says, God, hear their mocking. God, listen to what they're saying. You know, you read it on face value and you think, oh, just get over it, Nehemiah. They're not throwing bombs at you. They're not, they're not shooting you down. Just, you know, they're just mocking you. But it had such a negative effect upon the people that the people then began to complain. 
So Nehemiah is trying to deal with this external oppression and then the people in the house begin to complain, oh, we're getting tired. We can't do this anymore. We've got we've to back off. We've got to stop. He's going, no, no, now's not the time to back off. Now's the time to push through. Now's the time to, to, to grab a hold of this thing and release your faith because God has birthed this. God has brought this to be. We will all have a chapter four. Faith is not simply believing God for a breakthrough. It's not simply believing God for a provision. It's not just believing God for a healing or for a directive to find your way through a problem or through a maze. Faith is about walking the journey of life with God. That's what faith is. Faith is about knowing no matter what is thrown at me, he's always there. No matter what sideswipes me, he is always there. He will take me through and I want to walk through life with a confidence that no matter what happens, God is a loving father who never makes mistakes. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says that his word is perfect and all his ways are just. I've had some moments where I've questioned that. I've had some moments where I'm thinking, where's the justice, God? Where's, where's the vindication? Where's the breakthrough? Where, where is the, the hand of God that just just reveals what's really happening. God, where is it? I, I don't think all your ways are just at all, but his, his word says they are. So I have to come to a place where, God, I don't understand why this is happening, but you, you're allowing it to happen. Sometimes I've got to stop and say, have I created this problem? And there are times I have created it, and I can undo it as quick as I created it. But more often than not, there were things that were out of our control. And we have to just... Just learn to walk with God. He is a loving Father who never, ever makes mistakes. 1 John chapter 4 tells us God is love. He that loves is born of God and knows God. He that doesn't love does not know God because God is love. And, and you know, I have to come to that place of God, you love me. You're not angry with me. You love me through the blood of Jesus. I'm acceptable to you. You, you actually sent Jesus to die for me, to save me, to bring me life. I, God, I'm just going to confess that and, and all this stuff that's happening, I'm just, I'm just going to stay the course. I'm not going to be swayed by this. I'm not going to be deterred by this. I'm not going to be discouraged by this. I've got unmet expectation here, God, but maybe my expectation didn't line up with your expectation and I need to bring my expectation back into alignment with yours. That's a sermon in itself. I want to walk through life. Uh, with a confidence that no matter what happens, God is intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Psalm 139. He is intimately acquainted with all of my ways and that he is bringing to completion the good work that he began in me. Faith, in the words of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4, in the Amplified Version, is the leaning, is the leaning, of our entire confidence in his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. For we have heard of your faith, Paul said, in Christ. How you lean on it. So this is what their faith looked like. How you lean on him with absolute confidence in his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. You lean on him with absolute confidence, absolute confidence in his power, in his wisdom, and in his goodness. I know Margot's preached on this before, and one of her favorite sayings out of this verse is his power and ability to do what needs to be done. Yeah. I walk with absolute confidence in his power 
and his ability to do what needs to be done. I walk with absolute confidence in his wisdom and knowledge to do it when it needs to be done. I want it done yesterday. There are some things I go, God, I just want this now. I've had prophecies over my life. It's just around the corner. I hate prophecies like that. Because my corners are far smaller than God's corners. God's corners are more like the Jesmond roundabout. They just take forever to get around. And then by the time you get, you've forgotten what exit you're going to go out of. It's that big. And you just keep going round and round. But God's corners are far bigger than my corners. But we need to walk with absolute confidence in his wisdom and his knowledge to do it when it needs to be done. And we need to walk in absolute confidence in his goodness to know how it needs to be done. And sometimes, and you've heard this said before, God gives us what we need in a package we don't want. Because he's more interested in doing stuff in us. I've run out of time, but let me just say this. To overcome the kind of perplexity that leads to despair and disappointment, keep your sights fixed on eternal purpose rather than temporal gain. Keep your sights fixed on eternal purpose rather than temporal gain. We have a slogan. We don't use it much in our church now, but it is part of who we are. We believe more in kingdom purpose than personal preference. What is the big picture? And you know something we need to understand? God has a way of achieving things through brokenness that are harder to achieve when we feel all is well. God has a way to achieve things through brokenness that are harder to achieve when we feel all things are well. I struggled with that verse that says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. I struggled with it because my whole concept of Jesus was he came to put back together that which was broken. But then I had a revelation. He's not talking about broken by life. It's like the horse that's wild and free. It's broken by the horse whisperer. And it's not broken as in broken apart. It's broken in so that it can take the bit and the bridle and the reins so that the horse can then become useful to the rider. How many of you know he's the rider? If he's trying to break you, it's only because he's trying to break you in. He's trying to get us to yield and succumb. Many of us want the power of God to deliver us, but we don't want the power of God to disciple us or break us or mold us into the person he needs us to be. What is it you're going through? Are you hard-pressed on every side? Do you feel a pressure of the moment? Don't be crushed by it. Do you feel persecuted or hunted down? The enemy has got that target on your back and he's just after you. Are you struggling in that particular area. You know, let me, let me say this to you. The enemy is hunting you down. The enemy is looking for that opportunity to hit the bullseye in the middle of your back. But don't let it destroy you. Like Jesus, just walk through the midst of it and keep on your way. That's all you've got to do. So how do I get out of this? Just walk through the midst of it and keep on your way. 
can't go on any longer. Yes, you can, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I just don't feel like I've got... I, I, was, I was sharing. Can I just take a couple of minutes? Just a couple of minutes. I was sharing with somebody just recently. I'm careful how I say this. But I've had seasons and times in my life where I feel like I've lost my passion. Sometimes you can get jaded by church life. You can become discouraged by things that are happening or things that aren't happening. There are times where it's, it's actually stolen the passion out of my life to the point where I think, I can't be bothered anymore. And I said to this person, I said, I really need God to ignite the passion back in me. He looked me straight in the eye and said, God is not going to do that. And the moment he said it, he didn't have to say another word. I knew it was true. I looked back in the eye and said, no, he's not, is he? I have to fan into flame the gift of God that is in me. He just started to laugh. He said, oh, you're quick. <laughs> but it was like a God moment. It's like, God, just give me the passion, man. God, just ignite the passion. And he's going, I'm not going to do anything of the sort. I've already made it clear in my word. You need to do that. That's your responsibility. You get the passion. And as you follow the passion, I'll go before you and open the doors. But I'm not going to give you the passion that I've told you to ignite in your own life. Paul said to Timothy, fan into flames the gift of God that is in you. Timothy was struggling. He was jaded. He, he was really narked at the church. you know. And it's like he, he said, oh, Paul, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. Timothy, fan into flame. You had passion. Yeah, I know I've lost the passion. We'll get it back. Well, God needs to just come and give it back to me. No, he's not going to do that. We have to fan into flame. What is it you once did in church that you just kind of walked away from? And it was your gifting. It was your strength. It was your calling. It was part of who you are meant to be. And you just kind of walked away because somebody, somebody hurt you or something discouraged you. Or, you know, what is it? Don't let the devil steal that from you. Fan back into flame. How do you fan it back into flame? Get back into his presence. You know, I, I, for want of sounding like a broken record, in his presence is fullness of joy. And how many of you know the joy of the Lord is your strength? If you lose your joy, you lose your strength. And if you lose your strength, you lose the battle. You can't fight if you're not strong. So, well, oh, God, just give me my strength back. No, get back into his presence. We've got a fan into flame. The gift of God is within us. Get back into his presence so that the fullness of joy will come back. And when the fullness of joy comes back, your strength comes back. Margot and I were watching the Avengers last night on DVD, the first one. Now, they were getting beaten to a pulp. You know, the enemy was just obliterating them. Who was it? Captain America and... And with Superman and Iron Man and what have you. And they're just getting beaten to a pulp. Just smashed to bits. It was disturbing. Nearly didn't sleep last night. I was so overwhelmed. The superheroes are being destroyed. But when they got back into their zone, <laughs> you know, the strength comes back. You know, Thor lost his hammer. And without his hammer, he lost his strength. And everyone knew, and they're all trying to get the, gotta get the hammer. Thor, do something. He can't do anything, you idiot. He hasn't got his hammer. Like, Come on, get up and do something. Well, he can't. He's lost his joy. His strength's gone. Well, how's joy got anything to do with strength? I don't know. It's just God said so. The joy of the Lord's your strength. 
Don't ask me to figure it out. It doesn't make sense to me either. All I know is if we get the joy of the Lord, strength comes. And when strength comes, we overcome. What is it that's holding you back? What is it that's stopping you? You don't have to do everything. Just find one thing and just do it with all your heart. Paul said, there's one thing I do. I forget what lies behind. And I press toward the mark to lay a hold of that for which he laid a hold of me. What did he lay a hold of you for? He, he didn't just save you from sin. He saved you for a purpose. He laid a hold of you because he's got a plan for your life. and a de- It's not your destiny for your life. It's his destiny for your life. We've got to stop talking about my destiny, my future, my vision. my No, it's his vision for you. 